This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Designed specifically for venture-backed startups, Brex is the perfect corporate card for fast-growing companies. Head to brex.com and sign up with the promo TFR to get waived card fees for life. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Today, we welcome one of my favorite minds in venture capital, Charles Hudson, veteran of soft tech. He recently started his own firm, Precursor Ventures, and joins us today to talk about developing a point of view on a new market. A very appropriate topic right now, as we've been doing deep dives on a number of markets, verticals, and technology trends. On today's episode, we cover questions including what Charles' experience at SoftTech was like and how he made the transition to founding Precursor, what his continuing role as venture partner at SoftTech entails, how Charles decides to study a new emerging market and some of the markets he's analyzed over the years, the three components of his approach to getting smart on a new area, how important timing is, and how he considers if timing is right for a new area, if he assesses markets vertically and looks for the level within the supply chain stack to see where a company is playing and which level within the chain is going to exert the most control over the market, how he breaks down market structure and the critical components therein, the importance of the degree of homogeneity of the customer base within a target market, how he thinks about companies disrupting existing markets and those creating brand new markets. We also discuss how there's always a good reason to say no to startups, and more importantly, the key recurring reasons that come up that cause him to say yes. And we'll wrap up part one by discussing how he measures TAM, total available market, in an area that's nascent where the market doesn't yet exist. Coming up next is my interview with Charles Hudson of Precursor Ventures. But quickly, I wanted to say a congratulations to David Cohn and the team at Regroup Therapy. Uh, We recently closed an investment in Regroup Therapy, which is a Chicago-based company in the digital health space. Uh, We decided to syndicate this investment on AngelList, and we had a great group of angels come together to help this startup close out their round. Also, special thanks to Hyde Park Angels for leading the round, and thank you to Impact Engine and OCA Ventures for participating as well. We've got a lot of exciting activity happening in our deal flow funnel right now, and if you'd like to take a look at what we're working on and our deal flow, feel free to go to AngelList and search for New Stack Ventures. There you will find our syndicate, and you can back our syndicate for as little as 2500 bucks. After doing so, you will see our deal flow. That doesn't mean that you will be an investor, but it gives you the option of opting in if you see a deal that's appealing. Today, Charles Hudson joins us from San Francisco. Charles is managing partner of Precursor Ventures, a pre-seed venture capital firm focused on investing in B2B and B2C software companies. 
Prior to forming Precursor, Charles was a partner at SoftTech VC, where he still currently serves as venture partner. And Charles has one of the more interesting backgrounds of anyone I've met, including founding Bionic Panda Games, working in New Biz Dev for Google, and even spending time working in the Strategic Venture Capital Group for the CIA. Charles, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Nick. It's really a pleasure. Absolutely. So today we're talking about developing a point of view on a new market. But before we jump into that, can you walk us through your background and also how you became involved in startup investing? Yeah. So uh, I am originally from Detroit, Michigan. I moved out to California to go to school at Stanford, where I studied economics and Spanish, which is, I'm sure you can imagine, is the ideal background for becoming a technology venture capitalist. (laughs) But I happened to go to school at a, at a time when kind of we were at the middle of the tail end of kind of the Internet 1.0 uh, boom of the late 90s. And so took an internship at a company called Excite at Home that is sadly no longer with us. Um, had a great time working there. And as I got ready to graduate from college and uh, go take what I thought would be a much more traditional job in either finance or consulting, my manager at, at Excite pulled me aside and said, hey, my husband is starting this venture capital firm. I think you should go talk to him about it. Uh, the one catch is that he's investing money on behalf of the CIA. And so once I got wow. over my, you know, my, my shock that the Central Intelligence Agency would have an interest in venture capital and that I would know somebody who was connected to the Central Intelligence Agency, I explored the role and it just turned out to be one of those things where when I looked at all of the jobs that were on my plate, that was the one that I said, this feels very much like a once in a lifetime kind of opportunity. And so decided to, to take the plunge and ended up working at InQtel for just under four years. It gave me a lot of exposure to the world of, of venture capital and it gave me a lot of exposure to the unique technology needs of the CIA. And it kind of, for me, sparked a real deep interest in venture capital as a career, but also made me acutely aware of, of kind of the limitations of what you can do in VC as a, as a brand new college grad with limited operating experience. So what was the team like there at the CIA? And were the responsibilities very different working in government than, uh, than in a private VC capacity? Yeah, you know, I would say that this might be kind of not as exciting of an answer as some of the audience would like to hear. But honestly, InQtel, I think, had the same tension that all corporate or strategic venture capital groups have, which is how much of our activity and time should be spent doing things that directly serve our kind of client or sponsor's core mission in today's problems versus how much of our time should be spent um, addressing future things that are on the horizon that'll be problems in the future but are not problems today. And uh, I was really impressed by the folks in the government that I met and sort of their ability to kind of hold in their mind on the one hand, hey, here's the things we really need to address in the next couple of quarters and years. And here's the areas where we want exploratory investments made so that we understand the state of the art in terms of technology. So I think when I talk to my friends who've worked at other strategic venture capital groups, the nature of the problem was different for us at InQtel, but the, the dynamic tension was similar. Got it. And when did you make the decision to uh, um, transition into soft tech? And also, subsequently, how did you decide to, uh, to branch out and launch Precursor? Yeah, so to, to transition into soft tech, I had started, I'd, I'd been uh, the head of biz dev at a, at a games company that was acquired by Zynga. This is sort of, call it circa 2009, 2010. 
I also had built a media business with a friend that was focused on free-to-play games. And in both cases, I was reaching the point where you know the company getting acquired by Zynga kind of freed me up. I ended up selling that conference and events company. And I went from a really intense time when I'd had sort of two jobs around the clock to a period of time where I had a chance to step back. And I'd made some angel investments and had some advisory roles in a handful of companies uh, and realized that I liked investing and was continuing to write new checks. But as I looked at my own sort of time allocation, I said the best way to be an investor, given what I want to do, would actually be to find a way to become a full-time investor. And so decided to really focus on moving back into a full-time venture career. I had been approached, as I was sort of going through this thinking, had been approached by a number of other firms that were thinking about adding people to the team. And sort of, I had known Jeff for a really long time, going back actually to my Incutel days, because Incutel and uh, Reuters, where he was at the time, had very similar investment mandates. And so after a long talk, we decided we would you know, give it a shot and work together and had a great time working at SoftTech for, for almost five years. But uh, SoftTech had, has had tremendous success investing in a bunch of really amazing companies some of which like Fitbit have managed to go all the way and, and go public. And you know we had the ability to raise larger and larger funds. And as we raised larger funds, the investment strategy changed. And we went from being kind of first money in investor to the investor that would come in once you had some level of traction or proof around your model. And I think that that's a, a good use of the time and talents of the team at SoftTech. But I just kind of yearned for the days of old when we were first money in, when we were investing smaller sums of money in companies that were early, earlier in their life cycle. And I felt like there was a market opportunity to create a firm that would focus exclusively on those kinds of investments, as many of our peers and my friends had the success that enabled them to grow their fund size and move upstream. Well, great. Well, congratulations on, yeah, on launching Precursor. Can you tell us a little bit more about your venture partner role? Because I know that you're solicited as venture partner at SoftTech, and a lot of folks have pinged me about what these roles like EIR and venture partner mean. Um, and just like to hear from your standpoint uh, what your duties are or what your responsibilities are as a venture partner. Sure. So I think venture partner means something different at every firm. I think when I talked to the the folks at SoftTech, it felt to me that there's still companies where I was the principal relationship that that company had with the firm. It didn't feel great to ask those people to build new relationships with uh, my colleagues at SoftTech. It also didn't feel right to saddle my colleagues with new relationships that would you know compete with their time and attention for things that, that they wanted to sponsor. And so I told uh, Jeff and the team that I'm happy to continue to serve as the point person uh, for these companies going forward until they kind of raise the next round or, or outgrow the sort of soft tech stage of involvement. So I'm not making any new investments on behalf of the firm, just supporting a handful of companies that I'd invested in prior to leaving. Got it. And I've seen in your bio that Precursor is focusing on B2B and B2C software companies um, is that the extent of it, or is there um, sort of s- specific sectors or areas um, similar to what you focused on back at SoftTech? Yeah. So here's the way I would I would think about it. My original thesis was I was going to focus principally, if not exclusively, on software investing, and then people started 
bringing me really interesting hardware opportunities. <laughs> <laughs> and when I'd been at SoftTech, you know, hardware wasn't something I did largely because you know Jeff was a seed stage investor in Fitbit, in Coin, in August, in Six Sensor Labs, in Halo Neural, in a bunch of really interesting hardware companies. And within our partnership, Jeff just knew far more than I did about hardware. And so naturally, our hardware entrepreneurs who approached the firm would gravitate toward working with Jeff because he was our subject matter expert. So I'd never really had much of an opportunity to dive into hardware on my own. And ironically, the first investment I made out of the fund was a hardware company. Now, I can't tell you which one it is because they still haven't announced what they're doing. But it really opened my eyes to the opportunities in and around hardware. And it's been awesome for me to get a chance to kind of develop my own set of theses and best practices in and around hardware. So that wasn't something that was going to be a key part of the fund. But I've made two hardware investments in the fund and will probably make a third uh, later this quarter. This makes a lot of sense with you starting your own firm, you know, with today's topic. And in light of that topic, developing a viewpoint on new areas, can you start off by mentioning how you decide to study a new emerging market and maybe mention a few of the markets that you've developed a point of view on over the years? Sure. So I think I, I tend to lean hard on my academic training. And you know, I think one of the best things I learned in college as an economist is really just how to kind of pick apart a market and think about all of the things that make for good markets and all of the things that can make for, um, for bad markets. And so I actually spend a lot of my time trying to figure out, like, what is this market going to look like at scale? That's usually what I start off with. And a lot of times, I think a lot of people get fixated on market size. You know, like, is this going to be a market that could be $10 billion in the next 10 years? I actually sure. tend to focus on market structure first. Because I think market structure is, to me, as important as market size. And, and here's, here's what I mean by that. I oftentimes will think about businesses and say, at scale, is this a winner-take-all market? Is that where it's trending? Are there network effects? Are there sort of benefits to, particularly with marketplace-based businesses? Are there, are there structural reasons why everybody, consumers and service providers in this industry, should be on one common platform? And is that kind of the outcome maximizing thing for everybody? And I think when you look at some things like transportation and delivery services, you could make an argument that consumers and suppliers from an economic standpoint are best served if everybody were on one platform because it'd have the most liquidity, lowest search costs, lowest transaction, lowest transaction costs for both sides. Now there's other arguments why, you know, as a, service provider, I might not want to be completely beholden on only one channel. And as a consumer, I might not want a monopolistic provider of any service that I depend on. But there's some markets where you realize, wow, like the steady state is probably like one large winner. And if that's the case, that really influences the way that I think about the companies and their strategies. And it influences who I look for. Um, and I could give you some examples of companies, like I, I would, without getting too specific, uh, one of the companies that I, I sort of helped SoftTech invest in when I was back at the firm was a company called Shippo that provides a, a shipping API. And there's a lot of really interesting properties about the, the way that they've architected their system that create tremendous benefits for the network of people who are on their platform. 
such that as they acquire more people using the platform, it becomes more valuable for everybody who's already on it. So I think those are kind of, for me, like the holy grail kind of businesses where, you know, the steady state is that the market leader will get a disproportionate share of the outcome and that you feel like you found a team whose viewpoint on how the market will develop resonates with mine. And I think that they're uniquely qualified and situated to go after it. And that doesn't always happen. So I usually start with market structure. The next thing I usually go into is like, well, what are the, what are the like fundamental um, gross margin business economics of the service that they're trying to provide, again, at scale? So I always ask myself, like, what does this business look like at scale? Like, what do I think they can charge their customer? What do I think the core inputs of the business are going to be? And to me, this is like uh, multiply, add, subtract, divide kind of math. This is not... This is not, you know, whip out Excel and build a 10-tab model. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of, can you pencil out a story that makes sense? Where you believe that the business has kind of core drivers that are going to make it long-term viable and sustainable. And then there's this sort of other macro question that I always ask myself, and it goes back to a blog post that Michael Arrington wrote many years ago about swimming upstream. And this one's kind of hard to explain to founders is, is the thing that they're building, is the world bending in the direction that these founders want to go? Because there's plenty of legacy markets that aren't going away, but they're probably not going to grow and be interesting in the future. And so I'll give you an example. I I met probably um, eight or nine companies that were working on valet parking in urban areas, kind of like an Uber-like model. And in many cases, I told the companies, I'm like, I believe everything about your business except for the arc of hi- except for the arc of history. I think urban car ownership, whether you believe in self-driving autonomous cars, whether you believe in, you know, increased penetration for Lyft and Uber making the average ride cheaper. I said, I just I'm I'm kind of bearish on long-term urban car ownership. And I'm bearish on the role that sort of self that you know human-driven automobiles will play in urban landscapes in the future. And against that backdrop, it's really hard for me to bet against the future. And that's a highly subjective thing to tell someone. Same thing is true. I've met companies that are building really interesting cloud-based business telephony systems. And I just ask myself, like, well, what's the future of the office desktop phone? To me, it's like, it's not great. (laughs) Um, I'm just given the trends that I see around mobility and services like Skype it makes me somewhat bearish. The idea of having a way to contact a person in a business context on all of their devices makes sense to me, but that might not be a phone number. And it might not have the same economics or the same structure of traditional um, landline telephony. And so for me, that is the future heading in this direction piece is really, really, really critically important. And so I do a lot of my thinking on new markets kind of from the bottoms up. And I always ask myself, like, well, what would I have to believe about the world for this market to be really interesting and large? And I'm sure you you got to take timing into consideration on that yes. to some degree, because yes. a lot of the services that we've we've come to know and love um, are certainly going to be gone in some matter of time. But we could be talking one decade or we could be talking uh, multiple decades. Yeah, and I think timing to me is, I I always ask myself kind of the same set of questions 
whenever I meet a founding team, I don't usually ask them explicitly, but they're running through my head. One is, hey, why this team? What is it about this collection of individuals that makes them special and unique in terms of their worldview? Why this market? You know, why are they building what they want to build? The most importantly, why now? I always ask people, why not do this two years ago? Why not do it two years from today? Why now? Because for most startups, if you miss your window by, by two years either way, either you're going to be late to market and someone else is going to have figured out things and made progress, or you're going to be too early. And so I think that timing piece is really important. And for me, oftentimes, the timing piece is really subjective. It's like, when do people feel sufficiently comfortable with their cell phones to do things that you didn't think they'd be willing to do? Or when is cell phone penetration high enough? Like, what's the threshold mark? Right, or, right. So I think you have to kind of take all of these things into account. And it doesn't mean that you'll get it right every single time. But for me, it gives me a framework to try to break these problems down. And when I meet businesses and tell them, like, here's a perfect example. I'll give you like a real world example. I met a really interesting company last week that's building infrastructure for mobile games companies. Really smart group of guys, really good market time. They had your classic TAM slide. Look at all of the money that's spent on mobile games. Look at how big some of these mobile games companies are. And what I told the founders, I said, but listen, when I look at the app store charts, there's five to 10 companies that are probably the major, more than 50% of the dollars and accounts and revenue is going to a relatively small number of players. So if you don't have those players as customers, I'm not sure that rolling everybody else up creates a terribly interesting business, despite the fact that there's a lot of money in games. And they're like, well, we had never thought about it that way. I'm like, well, that's, that's the way I think about the market. You're in. You have revenue, traffic, attention is concentrated in a really small number of players. And if you don't have them on board, you, you maybe don't have a business. Good point. And so it takes, the, the problem is, you sometimes have to see three or four companies um, in the same market space with different strategies to build your own thesis about around what will work. And so part of it is iterative. I think I usually start off with a basic thesis and then I'll meet three or four companies. And a thesis is just that. It's like a set of beliefs. And sometimes I'll meet companies and they'll say, hey, you might have believed that A, B, and C was true. We thought so too. But here's what we're actually learning from our customers. Or we've tested that thesis. We came in with the same point of view. And it turns out that in practice, that's actually not what people want to do. They want to do something very different. Interesting. Do you also look sort of vertically through the supply chain or the, the supply stack and figure out which level is going to exert the most control over a market? I, I, I do. And I think I, I do. And I spent a lot of time thinking about that very point because uh, the other thing is that most of the companies that I see, there is somebody else who's in an adjacent market who could probably, in theory, do what they're doing? And the question is, like, well, why? It's, it's that kind of classic, like, well, why can't Google do this? Well, the answer is because Google has lots of other priorities, but it's not a resource issue. Right. And a lot of questions, that instead of asking people, like, well, why couldn't so-and-so do this? I'm like, well, why aren't they doing this? Like, if it's so obvious, like, what, like, what is it about their strategy that precludes them from doing this? And sometimes it's just a question of they haven't gotten around to it yet. And in other cases, there's you know business model reasons. There's 
strategic concerns, there's partnerships, there's capabilities in the company that preclude them from being successful in these extension areas. And so a lot of what I'm testing for in that is I'm trying to figure out how well does the founder understand the landscape that he or she's playing in and the relative strengths and weaknesses and tendencies of the companies against against which they're going to compete. So going back into these these three points that you made that that you kind of study when looking yep. at a new area. Uh, number one, I had market structure. Number two, I had sort of the economics of of the market and if they make sense. And number three was sort of the uh, the relevance of the product or service long term and if it's going to be a, a value contributor in the long term. Yep. So the three main areas that you study when looking at a new market included. Number one, the market structure. Number two, the economics. And number three, the long-term relevance. Can you provide some more thoughts on what you're analyzing with number one, the market structure piece? You know, there's some markets where there's one really, really big incumbent who has a lot of strengths. And if there's a company that's, you know, so if you, have a, if you have a company that's really, really good at selling to the highest high end of the market and providing in a B2B context, Really great customer service. They've got like the high end sales reps. They they're they're you know really good at direct selling to the biggest of big accounts, but they're terrible at the low end. There's probably an opportunity to disrupt them there, or at least compete with them, because so much of that company is oriented towards serving their high end customers. I think what's more difficult is like markets where it's really fragmented. Usually that tells me something about the nature of the buyer. Like I look at a market like CRM, I think most people think, oh, well, Salesforce like controls the whole market. Last I checked, Salesforce is somewhere between 17 and 20% of the CRM market. Right, yeah. So like four out of five people are not using Salesforce. They're using something else. They're using Microsoft Dynamics or they're using Base or they're using Hi-Rise, Basecamp. They're using something else. And the fact that CRM is really, really fragmented tells me that it's really hard to build a standardized product in that space that meets the needs of all customers. Got it. So if someone comes and tells me, hey, we're going to build this next-gen CRM system, there's all these businesses out there, we think we can get them all. Well, the reality is that it turns out that being Viva Systems and doing a really interesting thing on top of Salesforce for one market that's highly specialized to their needs could produce a monster company. And it probably will produce more value than many of the you know, broad-based approaches to tackling CRM. So is there a component on sort of the degree of homogeneity of the, the needs of the customer base? Absolutely. Absolutely. And to me, market structure kind of, for me, it's a quick way to get into that. Like, for example, there's some hardware categories that I've seen where there's a legacy incumbent provider that has 70%, 80% market share in some category. They have a strong patent portfolio, but they're not innovative. And so in those cases, I go, okay, so really, there's one big dog company in this space. Because of who they are, we should assume that they'll be litigious. And we should assume that if we get a modicum of success, they're going to throw the weight of their patent portfolio after us. And odds are that they're probably not the most technologically adept or technologically innovative company against whom we're going to compete. So when we're going to market, we should know that at some point, we're going to get sued. And that we need to resource the company in such a way that a lawsuit doesn't tank us while we work on building an innovative product. Like, I'm sure the folks at Nest were not stunned when Honeywell sued them. Right. They're smart people. And so 
I think knowing knowing that you have one really big entrenched player with a lot of market share, if you compete with that company, like I don't like competing with large high share incumbents in their home markets. Oftentimes, like I wouldn't want to compete with Google and Search. I wouldn't have wanted to comp- compete with Microsoft and productivity apps or operating systems back in the '90s. Like competing with an incumbent that has high market share in their core market, you're going to get their best punch. They're going to have their best people working on defending the core. And so that's the other thing, the reason I look at market structure is because sometimes I say, gosh, we're going to compete with that company kind of on their home turf. So we really better have a differentiated approach and go to market relative to what they have. Otherwise, you know, we're going to get the full, the full brunt of all of their, their marketing efforts and strategy efforts and things like that. Yeah, on that note, like when you look at a, an Airbnb or an mm-hmm. Uber, clearly they're disrupting existing markets. At the yep. same time, they're creating markets. Yep. Um, is it the difference in go-to-market strategy of an Airbnb or an Uber that they're, they're totally going after the market in a, in a fundamentally different way than sort of the, uh, the incumbent players in the taxicab market, for instance, or the hotel yeah. market? I think the hardest businesses to, this is sort of, I hope this answers your question, but it's something I think about a lot. I think businesses that are fundamentally about taking share away from an existing activity are actually kind of easy to understand. Mm -hmm. Because you can just say, like if Airbnb were just a cheaper hotel, you could say, okay, well, like they're really going to take hotel rates from 250 bucks a night to 150 bucks a night. That will maybe slightly increase demand, but maybe demand for hotel rooms is not elastic. Maybe it's just a function of you know how many conventions and companies you have in your city. So maybe even slashing rates in half doesn't fundamentally change demand for hotel rooms. The harder businesses, the value are ones where you're actually creating a new experience that people haven't had. Right. And what you're doing is you're creating something that didn't exist, and so. Like I have plenty of friends, you know, where Airbnb they are Airbnb homes where they would have never considered the prospect of getting a hotel. For sure, because they have a family of there. There's ten of them going away for the weekend, and then rather than rent five, the idea of renting five hotel rooms never occurred to them because renting a house is much cheaper. Or I I took Lyft to my office today, and I use Lyft probably more times in a week than I used taxi cabs in San Francisco in a month. Because the experience unlocks demand supply patterns that were probably apparent before, but not easily accessible. And those businesses usually end up being the, the, biggest, the biggest failures and the biggest successes, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Because you're really betting that people will, will start doing something that they haven't been able to do before. Yeah. And on that note, how do you think about these sort of nascent markets or these companies that are creating brand new markets in the context of you know, your structure and your approach on uh, developing a point of view on a new area? Yeah, so I think, yeah, here's one thing I think about. I think in venture, the hardest thing is that venture capitalists, we're pretty social animals. We all like to think that we're doing smart, interesting things. Sometimes you'll make an investment in a category and it looks foolish for a really long time. (laughs) And having to, and I think it's very hard in venture to have conviction around a category or an idea and to just sit with that when your peers and the press are telling you that it's dumb. Like, listen, I was at Y Combinator Demo Day when Cruz presented. 
And a lot of people said, there is no way I'm getting in a car driven by some technology created by a startup. No way am I putting my, my life in their hands, literally. Sure. And that's turned out to be, probably from an IRR standpoint, one of Y Combinator's best investments ever, if right. not the best. Right. And there's a lot of good reasons to think it was foolish to believe that. I remember when I was at Google and when we heard about Dropbox, when I worked at Google back in the early 2000s, we said there is no way a little scrappy startup company can do a better job of providing cloud storage than we can. It's a technical problem that requires scale and expertise. There is no way that this, this and you know, we, it, it's, I think it's pretty clear that Dropbox has really given it a go. And to do these things, it really requires a certain level of patience and you know, depth of conviction that you're right. And sometimes you won't be right. Sometimes you'll just be really, really wrong. And, and I think not everybody can, can sit with that. It's an interesting sort of area to be in in general because the general public is, is going to essentially think most of what you're doing is ridiculous. And then even within your peer set in VC, people yes. are going to think categories are, are ridiculous. I mean, the number of people I know who saw the original Airbnb pitch and just said, no one's ever going to do this, I think they were actually right. It turns out that the thing that's really propelled Airbnb is not exactly, you know, renting out someone's couch or renting out an air mattress on someone's floor. The product that's propelled them is not the same as the product that they pitched. Right. And so I think that's the other thing in venture. I, I come into every conversation with the basic belief, as a VC, there's a good reason to say no to every single startup that comes into my office. Like I could, I could, I could manufacture a pretty easy, obvious reason to pass. And so the real question is like, well, why do you say yes? And like, what's your own internal discipline and rationale for getting to yes? This episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Your startup is going to change the world and the right corporate card will get you there even faster. The Brex corporate card for startups offers 10 to 20 times higher limits than traditional corporate cards, automated expense tools, and huge rewards like four times points back on travel, three times back on restaurants, and two times back on recurring SaaS spend. And all with no personal guarantee. Sign up at brex.com and get waived card fees for life with the code TFR. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Assure. For over three years, Newstack has been raising capital on a deal-by-deal basis, allowing individual investors to select each startup investment. Assure is the company behind the scenes that powers this process. When we have 10, 20, or 30 angels investing in a startup, we can't put all those folks directly on the startup's cap table. So those investors are rolled into a special purpose vehicle that occupies just one line item on the cap table. And Assure handles all ongoing fees, finances, and K-1s for us. We pay a one-time upfront fee, and avoid all the required yearly admin filings and bills. If you run an angel group, or you would like your LPs to invest in deal-by-deal sidecars, go to assure.co slash TFR for 20% off your first SPV. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. 
So what is that? What is that answer? How do you get at, you know, a yes based on the way that you're approaching this? You're looking at the economics, you're looking at market structure, you're looking at, you know, the relevance and and the timing. What are some of the things that that really yeah. jump out to you on a recurring basis on reasons why you're saying yes? I, I the way I think about it is I, I really stack rank things. For me, it's team, market, product. I know a lot of my, my VC peers are very obsessed with product. Uh, I'm not. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to say that, Nick, that I, I'm not. The theory to me is I always ask myself, what are the hardest things to change in a startup? I think the hardest thing to change in a startup is people. I think the next hardest thing to do is to change the market in which you play because when you change the market context, the team might not make sense in context of the new market. Right. And I think products can and do change actually quite often. And, and honestly, founders are better. Good founders are better at finding product market fit than VCs are. I can assure you if I put the Snapchat UI UX in front of 100 VCs, 99 of them would have said this is a completely unusable product that no one will ever use. It. <laughs> so, so I try to stay out of the product lane. Because I think that's for consumers and end customers to decide, not for me. But the reason I stack them that way is that it's very easy to fall in love with people. And I know I have a a tendency to do this. And the reason I use that market check is because if I invested purely in people and the quality of people and their energy and enthusiasm and their creativity, I'd make a lot of investments in companies that look, some of them would start out, you know, building something, realize that they're in the wrong market, pivot find success, and turn out to be heroes. That's actually not the normal state of affairs for startups. The normal state of affairs that I've experienced is you pick the market that you're in, you try to build the product, the first product doesn't quite hit the mark, but you stay in your same core market and you iterate within that frame. And it's only when you become convinced that the core market you're in is no good that you start thinking more broadly about other places you could direct the team's energy. Right. But usually by then, as a seed investor, you, you've spent most of the money. And it might be too late to do anything about it. Yep. So I use that market piece as a check. If I get really excited about people, I'll then ask myself, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold on, press pause. What about the market and the specific opportunity they're going after? Is that exciting too? And yeah. if the answer to that is no, then I've, I've told people, I really like you and your team. I have deep reservations about the market that you're going after. and I can't move forward based on those reservations. And usually one of two things happens. I'm completely wrong and there's a great market there and they go on and they're successful. Well, three things happen. Two, they get in there, they pivot, they find something more interesting and I never get a chance to reinvest because they find that it wasn't as, uh, it wasn't as interesting as they, it was the new thing that they're doing is interesting and they, they have momentum to continue with that or third and three by far most common three quarters later, they come back to me and say, you know, we went down that, that, that hole and turns out that for reasons either the same or different from what you identified, it wasn't a great market. And so we're doing something different now. And I've just made peace with the fact that I'm willing to miss out on opportunities where I don't get comfortable with the core market opportunity that people are going after. And if it turns out to be bigger than I think or different than I think, or they pivot into something that I didn't anticipate, I I will lose those and and that's okay. You know, you mentioned earlier that you prioritize market structure over TAM. 
Um, And TAM is typically a function of price and volume. If the product is this fuzzy thing that's maybe less important than the team and the market, you know, how do you assess the the TAM, especially in a nascent market that that doesn't yes. yet exist? That's so hard. Like, I, I don't. I wish I could tell you. Like I have a really grand theory. <laughs> I mean, but I guess I start with I start with one of the big questions. Is like, are people already spending money against this problem today? And there's some problems where the answer is is yes. And then I always ask myself, if to the extent that the answer is yes, how does the way and amount of money that people are spending against this today map to what the company plans to do? Because there's some companies where you know, their plan is to radically reduce costs by a factor of 10. And they'll show me, hey, it's a billion-dollar market today. I'm like, okay, so you're trying to take it to $100 million then. And I think sometimes founders don't always connect the dots between the reason that TAM is high is because the competitor's solution is more expensive and that you replacing them will actually shrink the TAM. Yeah. But I also look at not just like, is there money being spent, but are the leading companies healthy, good gross margin businesses? So like the, the TAM for grocery stores is enormous. The gross margins for running a grocery store, unless it's Whole Foods, are like not amazing. Interesting. And so versus the TAM, I mean, look, Workday, Salesforce, Marketo, Oracle, we're talking about 70% gross margin businesses. Pretty good businesses to be in at scale. And big TAMs. So I'm always trying to ask myself, like, if this company is successful, what does the world look like when they're successful? Is it a lot more? Are they going to fundamentally bring a bunch of new consumers to the market? And like, this is about non-consumption. And so the current TAM isn't that relevant because their whole belief is that they're going to bring in some new people who have been on the, the sidelines of the market? Or is it that they're going to reallocate sort of some of the gross margin that's kept by the, the surplus that's kept by the producer and reallocate it to the consumer? Because I think all of those things, if you kind of pull on those threads long enough, you eventually get to an answer. Right, right. And my, my, ta- my TAM answers are usually... This feels like it's going to be a really big market because I can envision a lot of people paying a reasonable price for this product in the future. Not so much I think it's going to be $250 million in revenue in the next five to seven years. Right, right. Really fun and informative chat with Charles in part one. In part two of the episode, we will cover... How do you look at companies addressing industries where the incumbent product offerings are free? Businesses like Slack that were replacing free options. Then we discuss, quote unquote, fresh eyes and how Charles has written about how he doesn't look at decks before first meeting with an entrepreneur. And we ask him the key reasons why he takes meetings without reviewing a deck first. We also talk him about evaluation of startups that are pre-traction and what he looks for and why. Then in the spirit of continuous improvement, we talk about his thoughts on how one can learn and improve once they have a job in venture capital. And we round out the discussion with some really good insights from Charles on how to develop a thesis and how to look at new markets that may seem compelling, but require a deeper dive. Hope you join me for part two of the interview. Until then, remember to overprepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. We'll see you again soon.